0: Oh. Um.
1: to What's the Buzz Without a Podcast. This podcast is for beekeepers from Atlanta, Canada who want relevant, timely information about beekeeping in the region. We feature beekeepers and experts with specialist insights into our beekeeping and pollination industry. Hello and thank you for joining us today with our guest, Dr. Sarah Wood. Sarah is a veterinary pathologist with the Western College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. She has a specific interest in bees and beekeeping. And with that work, she's involved with both the Veterinary Pathologist Prairie Diagnostic Service, and she works as an adjunct professor in the Department of Veterinary Pathology at the University of Saskatchewan. Good afternoon, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Um, I think to start, perhaps um, the listeners would be interested maybe in a little bit of background if you're willing to share with us. Um, how you got interested in bees and how this has developed into a career for you.
0: Sure. So I am a veterinarian and I am born and raised in Saskatchewan. And early on in my veterinary career, I didn't really know anything about honeybees. I worked as a small animal veterinarian in Alberta. Uh, But after a couple of years in practice, I decided to go back to university to specialize in veterinary pathology. So that is the specialty that involves uh, diagnosis of disease in animals. And so uh, for that specialty training, I needed a research project. And I met with my future supervisor, Elamir Simcoe. And told him I was interested in, you know, maybe this concept of one health, uh, the idea that all species are connected, and maybe doing a project in a more non traditional veterinary species. And Alamir had been a hobbyist beekeeper for many years. And he told me that, you know, he had no experience doing research in bees and he had no funding. Uh, Would I be interested in doing a project with him? And I said, sure. So um, we started the first research apiary at the uh, vet college here in Saskatoon. We ordered a bunch of packages from New Zealand and um, installed them. And that was my first experience beekeeping. And I've basically never looked back. And um, so, yep, yeah, go ahead. It
1: happens to a lot of us, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, when I got, you got
1: hooked. You're, you're hooked and addicted. Um, I, I think that's really interesting, Sarah. Maybe for listeners um, that aren't familiar with the One Health concept, um, I know they would be fascinated to to understand better what that is, firstly, and then how bees fit into that.
0: Sure. So I guess um, more broadly, when we think about disease, we sort of think about... Uh, three factors that can cause disease in any species of animals. And so that is host, pathogen, and environmental factors. So those three factors work together to cause disease. And if we can sort of manage those three factors, then we can promote health. And so really, um, any species, whether it be a honeybee or a cow or a dog, are are impacted by th- host pathogen and environmental factors that, that can either enhance their health or decrease their health. And so, um, you know, what we know about disease in cattle can inform us about what we know about disease in honeybees. Um, if we think about a herd of cattle, you know, oftentimes we're going to manage disease at the herd level rather than at the individual level. And if we think about honeybees, oftentimes it's the same principle. We're going to manage health at the colony level or maybe the yard level rather than perhaps the individual bee level. Um, So that idea of one health, that the same principles apply no matter what species you're dealing with, and that everything is connected. That, you know, a healthy ecosystem with healthy pollinators is going to promote healthy, healthy grasslands and healthy cattle. Um, so veterinarians sort of are trained in all these different species and now are entering into um, the world of beekeeping a little bit. And so that makes them, uh, I think, well qualified to offer some advice and work in partnership with beekeepers to, to manage the health of their colonies.
1: And the One Health model extends beyond well what we um, think about as animals because it, it includes us in that category. So we can study um, disease and pathogens in, in another animal species that could be of benefit to humans. And I think honeybees are an excellent example because on the, on the face of it, you might ask yourself, well knowing about honeybees, how can that help humans? But certainly as you know in the example of an environmental sentinel, if you can see, That environmental factors, which is one of the three that you mentioned are impacting on the health of bees, then certainly we can take that and say okay well what is this then doing to other animals, including humans, so it's uh, it is uh, the big picture stuff isn't it one health and honeybees are certainly an important part of that. For sure. Okay, so um. Maybe uh, if you you wouldn't mind, we can talk a little bit about some of the research you did in the early days as part of this. This uh, um, sounds like a new um, area of research for the University of Saskatchewan that you and Professor Simcoe um, started. And then we'll get on because I know people are, are right now very interested in European fowl brood. But if we'll leave that for a minute and we can maybe talk generally about some of the other research projects you've been involved in leading up to that.
0: Yeah. So for my PhD, I studied the effects of chronic neonicotinoid exposure on honeybees in Saskatchewan. And so here on the prairies, uh, canola is pretty much our top crop now, has um, surpassed wheat in in some capacity in terms of the most popular crop. And 95% of canola is grown from seed that is treated with a neonicotinoid insecticide. So these are very widely spread used insecticides on the prairies. And at the same time canola is an extremely bee attractive crop. And so it's canola honey is um, responsible for, you know the large part of our honey harvest every summer. Uh, and so we know that honeybees foraging on canola are being chronically exposed to neonicotinoids at very low levels because um, these insecticides are systemic and they translocate into the pollen and the nectar of the plant albeit at very low levels and so we wanted to understand what are the effects of this chronic neonicotinoid exposure on the health of our colonies here on the prairies and what is sort of the safe environmental dose range for uh, colonies to be exposed to so that they can continue to be healthy. And so uh, we looked at a number of parameters, including uh, honey production, as well as overwintering. And we found that if uh, concentrations of neonicotinoids were maintained below 20 parts per billion, that we didn't see any negative colony-level effects on, um, you know, their survival, their honey production, uh, their vitality. Um, so, you know, currently the average neonicotinoid contamination, depending on what study you you read, um, it's usually in the range of five to ten parts per billion. So, environmental levels of neonicotinoid contamination seem to be below that dangerous threshold of twenty parts per billion. And um, so if we continue to, uh, you know, manage and, and use uh, our pesticides judiciously and appropriately, then hopefully we can optimize the health of our canola as well as the health of honeybees. Um, so just recognizing that, you know, it is a partnership between beekeepers and farmers. And, and if we can sort of determine what that safe dose range is, then, um, you know, it's better for everyone.
1: So it, it's been a, quite a shift in, in um, how we perceive these, uh, um, I guess what we used to call toxic um, substances because toxicology used to be about, you know, lethal dose 50 and that sort of thing, high levels. But now we're dealing with very, very low environmental levels, which is something completely different and how those, those affect an organism like a honeybee. So there's certainly challenges in that work.
0: Yeah, you know, there's certainly challenges with field work. And uh, one of the biggest challenges is high variability between colonies. You know, you want ideally in the perfect experiment, all of your experimental animals to be identical. And as we know, colonies vary. They um, vary in their strength, in their personality, (laughs) in all kinds of aspects. Um, and so because of that high variability oftentimes you need a lot of colonies a large sample size in order to have a um, significant effect that's statistically d- demonstrable um, so in some of these col- in these experiments field level experiments you know we're dealing with 60-70 colonies minimum Per per experiment. And as you know, um, managing that number of, of colonies in an experimental setting where everything has to be controlled uh, is, is a challenge. But at the same time, it's probably those field level experiments are probably some of the ones I'm most proud of because they are really indicative of what is going on in the field. And um, you just can't replicate that in, in the lab so um, it's worth the effort I think.
1: Yeah and the real world results. Okay um, and from that work Sarah you you went on to do other um, types of honeybee research?
0: Yeah so we started off in toxicology and then now our lab is we're still interested in toxicology but uh, also expanding into infectious disease So in 2018, uh, veterinarians became uh, federally mandated to, uh, to write prescriptions for antimicrobials for beekeepers. So there became a need for education of veterinarians in infectious diseases of honeybees. And so, uh, our lab was involved in providing some of that continuing education, and that started to get us interested and excited about infectious disease. So, uh, we are in our lab currently studying all kinds of infectious disease of honeybees from American foul brood to Nazima to Varroa. Um, And then, my particular interest would be European foul brood. And so, initially, um, we started off with just some very basic laboratory experiments. So um, infecting honeybee larva in the lab with Melissococcus plutonius, the bacteria that causes European foul brood, and just seeing if we could make a laboratory model of this disease. And we were successful in, in infecting these larvae. And, and um, with this few as 50 bacteria, we could reproduce the disease reliably. And so then with that laboratory model, we then um, started to investigate what are some of the predisposing factors that could um, tip the balance in favor of uh, European foul disease. disease. Um, so so that's sort of um, where we started. And, and now, now that we have a good laboratory model of this disease, we're now moving into the field level where um, we have, uh, Student uh, Ivana Cozy, who has developed a colony model of European foul brood, and so again, um, trying to tease out what some of the predisposing factors are to development of this disease in a colony.
1: Um, A couple of things there, if we could, if we could perhaps uh, um, get into a little bit more. Um, I was interested, and I knew that that um, um, you've been involved with training veterinarians and again when we started this conversation you said uh, when you qualified as a vet you didn't um, have exposure to bees necessarily through that training the world has certainly changed since 2018 and it's it's a situation across the country and with the work that we do here with the Atlantic Tech transfer team and some of the work that I've done um, in the maritime region there is a lot of variability in how vets are trained, how vets are prepared to um, meet the requirements now with these changes that Health Canada has imposed uh, on beekeepers and veterinarians. Um, I'm just wondering if, if, you, if you could explain to us what's going on in Saskatchewan, because you know even here in Nova Scotia, the approach is different than in New Brunswick because of how things are set up. So, um, how are beekeepers accessing vets and what are vets doing for beekeepers um, under these new laws?
0: Yeah, so it's definitely a work in progress. I think one of the big advantages that we've had is that we have a very strong uh, working relationship with our provincial specialist in apiculture and their technology transfer teams. So having a very good relationship with Um, the Provincial Apiarist, as well as the Provincial Beekeeping Association. Uh, That's been instrumental in um, building bridges between veterinarians and beekeepers. Uh, As well, um, you know, we've held a number of sort of uh, basic honeybee disease and biology training courses for vets so that they are prepared when a beekeeper comes into their practice looking for a prescription. And we've also um, done some outreach presentations at uh, local bee club meetings. And um, we even had a uh, veterinarian uh, come to one of the local beekeeping meetings and um, fill out prescriptions uh, for beekeepers. So um, the important thing is that in order for a veterinarian to write a prescription, they need a valid veterinary client patient relationship. And so in order to establish that relationship, there needs to be, um, you know, some proof that the beekeeper has bees, maybe um, some records of their previous treatments or previous health concerns. It doesn't necessarily mean that the veterinarian has to go and do a field visit to an apiary, Um, but, you know, just some interaction and um, understanding so that, you know, going forward, um, they feel comfortable prescribing those antibiotics. Um, and so again, that's something that we cover in this continuing education, uh, so that beekeepers and veterinarians sort of understand what the expectation is, and um, also have understanding about withdrawal times for antimicrobial treatment to prevent residues in honey and and protect just overall public health.
1: Yeah, and, and that's the important piece of this of this situation. But um, and I know it was fair to ask you this question as well because Sarah. Um, people from your lab, Elmer Simcoe, actually did part of the training that we've we've done here in Eastern Canada. Um, I think based on what you guys were doing, he came down and did a, a presentation to veterinarians um, at, uh, in PEI in the early days. But um, I'm interested, and I know our, our listeners in this region will be interested, because as it stands now, um, in order to establish the veterinary client-patient relationship in In our region, there's a feeling that the vets actually need to come and visit and see the bees. So I think there's still some things, there's some discrepancies. Well, perhaps discrepancies is too strong a term, but there is some difference in the interpretation of of how this will look to beekeepers and, and how it will need to be undertaken by vets across the country.
0: Yeah, and so I think, you know, there can be regional variations in how um, this is rolled out. But I think, again, the most important thing would be communication between the Provincial Veterinary Association and the Provincial Beekeeping Association and associated representatives like yourself and and others. Um, That communication can really iron out those wrinkles so that beekeepers and veterinarians are clear about what their responsibilities are.
1: Yeah. Okay. thanks for that. I just thought, as you mentioned it, it would be it would be nice for us as it's topical. And you you mentioned previously, I was glad that you reinforced my point about the uh, the need for both laboratory experiments and field work, because you began to talk about your work in European fowl brood. And you mentioned that that was initially what you did was the was the lab work. And now I know that's expanded considerably. And I think What um, kind of instigated our discussion What prompted us to have this this talk today was your work in European fowl brood. So we'd be interested to learn more about that if you'd be willing.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, So I guess I'll just start with uh, the disease itself. Um, So I think many beekeepers know that EFB is a, a disease of stress. And so oftentimes it will crop up in colonies that are under stress for some other reason. And uh, one of the most common reasons is um, nutrition. So early in spring, colonies coming out of winter may not have a very large adult bee population. And yet uh, they have a rapidly expanding population of brood as that queen starts to lay. And so there may be inadequate nursing bees available to care for the colony's open brood. And if there's not enough nursing bees, oftentimes um, those larvae will not receive appropriate nutrition, and you know perhaps there might also be a bit of a nectar dearth early in the spring as well, and so um, oftentimes European fowl brood is going to crop up when these uh, stressed larvae are are not being properly fed and cared for, and so I guess this idea of um, a disease of stress is very interesting to me because that, that means that, uh, you know, the environment is playing a big role. It's not just the pathogen, um, the, you know, whether or not, uh, disease is going to manifest itself. Um, but, uh, however, there's also pathogen factors to consider, you know, um, this particular bacteria, coccus plutonius, has different strains, some are more virulent than others. And so that can be another contributing factor to, to why disease might crop up if you got a really hot strain in your colony. And then uh, the third factor is, is host factors um, to think about. And so again, a, a good example is colony strength, you know, weak colonies might be more prone to this disease than strong colonies. Uh, And and so so thinking about these interacting host pathogen and environmental factors is sort of what caused us to to start our research um, in this area. And in particular, we wanted to look at blueberry pollination because we kept hearing from beekeepers that were taking their colonies to pollinate blueberries that um, they were seeing increased incidence of European fowl brood. And so we wanted to understand what were those host pathogen environmental factors that are particular to blueberry pollination that could be predisposing these colonies to develop disease. And so I guess just uh, my understanding is that you have primarily low bush blueberries in Atlantic Canada versus on the west coast of Canada, we'd have more high bush blueberries, Um, but I understand that both sides of the, the country are, are experiencing um, European foul brood issues. Uh, yeah, it,
1: it, you're absolutely correct. We have wild blueberries, low bush blueberries here. Um, and um, we are seeing problems with European foul brood, and it seems to be changing. But I, I find this kind of interesting as well because, um, you know, going back to the One Health model where we started the idea of stressing an organism or an animal and the resulting disease um, is nothing new. And, and in talking about this, I often use the example of shipping fever in horses because years and years ago, when they used to have to ship horses on, on what well, they called it ships, shipping because they were on ships. So they would send horses to Australia, for example, and, and the horses would become ill and with what they called shipping fever and of course they didn't know what the 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 path and pathogenic organism was they just knew they they became ill and then decades later when we started shipping horses by airplane so the journey would be 24 hours instead of a month they still had this mysterious shipping fever um, which we know now is just a stress-related condition so i i can understand fully why if we you stress bees assuming that going to blueberry pollination is stressful for them which perhaps we shouldn't assume but we'll say so um, that that the bees get ill um, so it, it isn't something that surprises me because there's and that's just one example but there's lots of examples in humans and and other animals where if you're put under stress there's there's uh, opportunistic pathogens that will say, ah, stress here. Let's let's attack. So um, European foul root is not different or unique in that way at all. So um, I think um, demonstrating it is great and telling people as you've just done is good too. But uh, I don't think we should be surprised that that's happening.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so if we can understand what those stressors are, then we are better able to manage them. And so that's sort of the thrust of of our research. Um, So currently we have funding from uh, Project APIS-M and Costco Canada as well as the British Columbia Blueberry Council to investigate what those stressful factors are that could be predisposing to European fowl brood during blueberry pollination.
1: So your first suggestion was that it's a nutritive stress which we can see that perhaps when um, bees go to sit on these giant blueberry fields um, where there's nothing else but blueberry pollen and, well, um, blueberry nectar. I don't think there's blueberry pollen available to the, the bees nutritionally, um, because they don't seem to collect it. But um, th- there's the shipping side of it as well, which, which may be stressful. Um, And before we get into the details of the nutritive stress, which I think you've looked a little bit at, um, has anyone looked at just the stress of transporting bees?
0: I wouldn't yeah, not our group. Our group hasn't looked at that specifically. Um, we've maybe thought about it more in terms of colony strength. So, um, you know, whether just being a weak colony uh, is going to predispose to disease. Um, but I, yeah, certainly transport is an issue and um, could be a contributing factor. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's something, you know, based not wholly, but in part on the example we just discussed. I think there is going to be a factor there, but how we measure that and, and demonstrate it is, is something different again but hopefully we'll be able to do that so the the nutritive stress then we feel is is probably one of the key triggers for european fowl brood
0: yeah so um you're right and uh probably the way that we've looked at that the most is um at the colony level so as i mentioned um Ivana Cozy is a PhD candidate in our lab who has developed this um, small colony model of EFB. So she basically makes these small mating nuclei and um, infects larvae in, in the brood frame with a culture of Melissa plutonius. And then she does different treatments to the colonies to see whether or not uh, they have disease. And so one uh, treatment that she used this summer was um, to provide different types of pollen and different quantities of pollen to these um, small colonies that were either control colonies or colonies that were infected with Melissa caucus plutonius. And so, uh, as you mentioned, bees do not necessarily collect blueberry pollen when they are in blueberry pollination, Um, but they are collecting pollen from, you know, sources around, uh, around that area, Um, so what she did is um, she sourced some blueberry pollen, so not necessarily pollen from blueberries, but pollen that was collected by colonies that were in blueberry pollination. So we don't actually know what the floral origin is of this pollen. We just know that it came from colonies in blueberry pollination. And so she gave that pollen to her experimental colonies and she contrasted that with pollen that was collected from the prairies. So uh, polyfloral prairie pollen that was not anywhere near blueberry pollination. And she wanted to know if the colonies that consumed that blueberry collected pollen, if, if they were more likely to develop European foul brood disease. And what she found is that actually the origin of the pollen didn't matter. So it didn't matter whether it was blueberry collected pollen or prairie pollen what mattered was the quantity of pollen that the colonies consumed. And the colonies that consumed more pollen were less likely to develop clinical signs of European fowl brood in her small colony model. So I think um, that sort of confirmed her hypothesis that uh, poor nutrition likely predisposes to disease. Um, and it may not matter exactly, you know, what kind of nutrition it is, where that pollen comes from, but, but that quantity of pollen matters.
1: Um, it's interesting. We, uh, we've done some work the last couple of years in collecting pollen samples from bees who were on blueberry fields. And we were quite reassured by the breadth of plant species that was being being collected. Um, so it kind of told us that it's a nice, varied diet the bees are getting. And these were smaller fields. We'd like to do more on bigger fields because here we have, you know, a, a typical blueberry field, five or six or ten acres in northern Nova Scotia, whereas we have some fields in the northeast of New Brunswick, which are a thousand acre fields. So I think it'd be very different what's available to the bees. But nonetheless, we were reassured by the breadth of species. Um, But what we didn't and weren't able to measure is the amount and we would, um, and now particularly based on what you just told me, um, because that was the suspicion we had that they're still collecting pollen and it's still from a good variety of sources, but probably the, and you know, we shouldn't just uh, assume anything before we do the research, but intuitively and through common sense, we could assume the bigger the blueberry field, the less variety, and more importantly, that the less quantity um, the bees will bring in. So you feel that this is one of the important um, stress stress triggers for EFB when hives or colonies are visiting blueberries.
0: Yeah, it seems seems that way. Certainly from Ivana's work. Uh, another thing that she's investigating and will be testing in the future is the number of nursing bees. So she can control the population size within these small colonies. And so she can either give them a small number of nursing bees or a large number of nursing bees. And then she compare, can compare disease incidence in the different colonies to see what the influence of colony strength and population size is on development of the disease.
1: Mm. Uh, We we also have done some investigations because it's um, an often discussed topic, colony strength, um, because obviously the beekeepers want to provide for pollination services adequately strong colonies and the producers of blueberries or other fruit certainly want to get strong colonies. But um, in in some of the work we've done, we've definitely seen that 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 would appear to be an advantage of meeting a pollination standard, for example, is there is a point at which if the colony is of a certain strength, it will come back healthier from the fields. Um, So the stress, uh, nutritive, travel, um, host factors, as you've said, um, are certainly part of this, but just a weak colony going through that is gonna come back more likely ill than a strong colony. So I think that's a practical thing for beekeepers to know that meeting a pollination standard or sending strong um, larger colonies is advantageous to them as well. because It will definitely reflect what they get back.
0: Yep. Yeah. Um, and then I guess just changing tact a little bit. Um, we have... Uh, Another student, uh, Jenna Thibault, who is actually from Moncton, New Brunswick, oh, nice. and um, she is um, studying uh, European fowl brood more in the lab. And she's looking at the effect of fungicides that are commonly used in blueberry production on incidence of European fowl brood. Um, So she, again, made her fungicide selections primarily based on high bush blueberry production on the West Coast. We just um, talked to growers out there and asked them what fungicides they were using. And then uh, she um, used her laboratory model where she would infect larvae with Melisococcus plutonius and then chronically expose them to these environmental concentrations of fungicides in the diet. and and compare whether uh, the infected larvae exposed to fungicides were more likely to die than the infected larva that received control diet. And so what she found really is that um, fungicide exposure, either exposure to individual fungicides or combinations of fungicides used in blueberry production did not significantly increase larval susceptibility to European fowl brood. So she did not demonstrate that fungicides were a risk factor for um, development of this disease, um, which is potentially a good news for for blueberry growers. Again, I'm not familiar necessarily with fungicide use uh, in Eastern Canada, blueberry production, um, but it would seem that for the fungicides that we tested, uh, we didn't find that it was a risk factor for development of this disease.
1: Okay, good. That's reassuring for the beekeepers and the blueberry producers, I'm sure. Um, if if we can continue our discussion of European fowl brood, um, we have sent you some samples over the last couple of years, not as many as we'd like to, but I guess the, the good part of that is that if we're not having a lot of problems, then we don't have a lot of samples to send, because um, we we wanted to, as you do, wanted to find out more about European fowl brood as this disease seems to be changing. Um, and you mentioned there's different strains of European fowl brood. And what we're seeing here is that, um, and I think the polite term we're using now for what we're seeing is atypical.
0: Yeah, or snot brood. That's not so not polite. Brood, yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, there's another word that people (laughs) apply to it as well, but um, it's this atypical um, European fowl brood, and atypical in that it's unusual in what the beekeepers are seeing in their hives in terms of what they've learned to recognize as European fowl brood. Now there seems to be something else that's happening in there, which again, it makes diagnosing this a little bit more difficult, Um, hence why... Uh, some of our beekeepers are keen to send samples to you because I think in part um, you and your team are investigating
0: that. Yeah so thanks for bringing that up and I will use this opportunity to put in a little plug to your beekeeping audience that we would appreciate samples um, in the future if you're noticing disease in your colony uh, in your colonies and we have um, provided some swabs to Andrew and your team And all we really need is just a swab of um, an infected larva from an infected brood frame um, and that is sufficient so um, that is really helpful so certainly want to encourage beekeepers to continue submitting Uh, and we do appreciate the samples we've received so far, Um, so what are we doing with those samples that we receive. Um, so um, we have another student, Fatima Masood, who is a master's student studying the different strains of Melissa plutonius. She's looking at their genetic diversity as well as their susceptibility to antimicrobials. And so when we receive a swab from a beekeeper, we are uh, plating that swab out on a bacterial culture plate. We're uh, isolating Melissa plutonius and then we are storing that isolate and using it in infection trials. So infecting larva with different isolates and comparing their virulence and pathogenicity, how quickly how quickly those bacteria kill the larva. And then we're also um, sending those isolates for whole genome sequencing so that we can genetically classify the different strains from around Canada and see um, you know, what is the diversity in terms of strain types and are these so-called atypical strains that have sort of unusual clinical signs, do they have something different in terms of their genetic sequence that might explain why they are behaving differently in the field? Uh, And then with that, we're also looking for genetic determinants of antimicrobial resistance. So um, there are genes that encode for um, antimicrobial resistance and we're also screening these isolates to see if if any of those genes are cropping up.
1: With that work to this point, um, have you got any results back that you could share with us that could perhaps give some insight for our beekeepers into this emerging, um, I'm assuming it's a different strain of, of EFB?
0: Yeah, so I can tell you that Fatima has identified, or preliminary data would suggest she's identified one new sequence type of Melissa caucas Plutonius, it came from uh, a colony in Western Canada, um, but this sequence type has not been reported before anywhere in the world. Um, so there's been very limited sequencing done of the isolates we have in here in Canada, so we really don't know what we have, but it seems that we've at least got one that nobody else has reported before in the world. Um, so so, that's, so I can tell you that there are yet un, probably undiscovered strains of Melissacoccus plutonius in Canadian colonies, um, and so that's why it's important that we do this surveillance to see, to see what's out there. Um, I can also tell you that of the strains that she's sequenced, which um, right now I think she's only sequenced about eight of them, but she's going to be sending another 60 here right away. Um, she's not yet identified any antimicrobial resistance genes, so that's good news. Uh, and she's also found that um, of the isolates she's tested, they they seem susceptible to oxytetracycline, which is the only licensed antimicrobial for use in, in treatment of American of European fowl brood. Um, so that's also a good news.
1: Good. So I guess if there are different strains, then we should not be surprised that the the symptoms we're seeing would vary with those. And... Um, I don't know if if we can get into this, Sarah, but um, there has been some suggestion that going to blueberry pollination and this new different or different um, strains, there may be some connection there, um, and I know you're interested in that, but I don't know if you've if you've begun the work yet to look at that.
0: Yeah. So um, again, Jenna Tebow, our student from Moncton, uh, she's been looking at that, comparing the virulence of strains from blueberry pollinating colonies and colonies that are not pollinating blueberries. So, And her hypothesis was that maybe the colonies pollinating blueberries have strains that are more virulent compared to the non-blueberry pollinating colonies. Uh, but what she's found thus far is that there's no difference that both there are highly virulent strains in colonies pollinating blueberries, and there are highly virulent strains in colonies that are not pollinating blueberries. So it doesn't seem that blueberry pollination is a risk factor for having more virulent strains of Melissa caucus plutonius.
1: Okay, interesting. And, and this work is ongoing?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good,
1: good. Um, We'll definitely want to hear more about that um, as you find out more Um, and certainly we encourage beekeepers as well when we're contacted um, uh, and they want to talk about uh, European fowl brood to send samples to your lab because I think that information that we can all benefit from them and those beekeepers directly is great and um, it, it sounds like you work in a very busy place Sarah.
0: Yeah, well, I think I just am um, uh, sort of the spokesperson for a group of very hardworking students, and uh, you know, I am inspired daily by um, how much they're they're learning and how they're applying their their veterinary knowledge to to a new field. And working working with and learning from beekeepers um, has been also just really tremendously helpful to our research. So. We really look forward to those partnerships in the future.
1: I'm sure you're much more than, than a spokesperson, but nonetheless, you're an excellent spokesperson. So thank you for coming on to our podcast and sharing this with, with our listeners. And we will look forward to hearing more about your work and seeing the results of that as it comes out. So thank wow. you.
0: Sarah. Thank you. I appreciate your time.
1: Your What's the Buzz with Atta Beekeeping podcast is brought to you by your Atlantic Tech Transfer Team for Ape Culture and Perennial Food and Agriculture. We would like to thank Rachel Oxner and Patty Ryan for production and editing, and we would like to thank you, our listeners. For more information on beekeeping in our region, visit our blog, www.atabuzz.com, And find us on Twitter. Atta at Atlantic B.